got a problem, you don't know what to do. Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too. The world is full of mystery, life's more than you can see. You can ask pomegranate, you can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Hi, everybody. It's me, Pomegranate. Um, today I'm talking to Willow Kelly. And uh, Willow is a death doula. She has so much knowledge about death, dying, burial, from both a practical and a spiritual aspect. She gives these workshops um, called Death Box Workshops that help you um, or your loved ones recognize the process of death and what you want around it. We also, she also helps you just realize you're going to die. Um, she also does moon rituals once a month, and these things are available on Zoom. She works with people one-on-one. She's a beautiful spiritual leader and has been traveling the world for 30 years um, providing these for people. Um, you can get a hold of her at willowkelly.com. And without further ado, here is a fascinating interview with the death doula and priestess, Willow Kelly. Hi, today I'm with Willow Kelly. Willow is a ritualist, a priestess, a healer, a teacher, and uh, a death doula. Is that how we say it, Willow? A death doula? That's one of many ways, yeah. What's another way to talk about it? Uh, some people say death midwifery or end-of-life doula. And you're certified, you're trained in this, and this is a big part of what's taken over your life recently in the last few years, right? Yes, How indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we're going to talk a lot about that today because, um, you know, when we want to go lean into that edge of mystery, uh, the biggest mystery of all, I think, is what happens on the other side of life and death. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but also a lot of what you're dealing with is the process of allowing the body to die and with dignity and grace and beauty and spiritual, with bringing a spiritual bent to it, as well as allowing the body to have the proper treatment after death. I think it's such a fascinating topic to think about um, that, like what happens, what happens to the body. Um, Let's come back to that, but for now, let's introduce you a little bit more. You have been traveling the world and teaching for how many years now? Is that like, it's got to be over 20 years, more like 30? Uh, yeah, about 1996. So. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting to 30. Yeah, <laughs> getting there. <laughs> so, I, so I'm interested in what... I'm interested in what would uh, what led you to find a spiritual path or uh, to use mystery as a way to investigate the world. How did you start out? What what happened? What drew you in? Well, I was raised as a Methodist and a Republican, and um, became a born again Christian at some point in my late teens and early twenties. And I know that in hindsight, I was looking for that ecstatic connection to the great mystery. And that was the best context I had for it. But sometime in my 30s, I just started really thinking about 
the power of words and what they mean. And if we say what we mean and what impact that has on the energy around us. And just through that exploration, I came to the understanding for myself that Christianity was based on human sacrifice. And I had never put that together, but it's in all of the liturgy. And it's, it's this foundational piece of the religion that I had somehow not fully registered that. And when I did, I had a crisis of faith because I felt like I couldn't I couldn't do that. I couldn't condone <laughs> a religion that required a human sacrifice for, you know, salvation. Um, so yeah. I found Deepak Chopra actually, and he oh. had done this. This was back when cassettes were a thing. Um, and he had this, this multiple cassette series called Magical Mind, Magical Body. And the whole idea was to sort of understand the energetic rhythms of your spirit, your body, your, all of this stuff through exploration of your DNA and your ancestry and your history. So he was saying in one of these tapes, if you're struggling with spirituality, start with what your ancestors did, begin there and see how that feels to you because you might find resonance there and go back and, you know, see what happens. So the only two legs that I knew about was that we were Cherokee and that we were Irish. Those were the only things I knew about my family at the time. And what was more palatable to me was, was doing the Native American circuit. So I started doing powwows and um, engaging in some activities with these people and really loving it. Um, but also kind of came across this, this barrier that I couldn't get across um, and a lot of it could have really been cultural, but it, it, there was a feeling of, um, misogyny and also of this, um, intertribal racism that I found again, like something I just couldn't, I couldn't participate in the jokes or the, um, cynicism or those things. Um, and I felt like I was kind of driven into the Irish aspect. Like you have to go there now because there's nowhere else to go. No, you um, can get into Irish cynicism instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you um, went to the, so, Irish, the Irish side. Yeah. So I started looking at, you know, um, the magical traditions, the Celtic, um, traditions and the seasons, celebrations and all of that sort of stuff and um, started picking up books on Wicca. And although they were appealing, they still didn't quite, they still didn't quite feel right to me. There was something, something that was missing for me, but I kept poking around and um, just exploring all of these different new age philosophies and traditions and practices. I'd go to anything. And I was in Southern California, so you can pretty much go to anything, right. um, <laughs> you know, all kinds of loopy stuff. Um, so I did a lot of those things and still hadn't really found the sweet spot, but the searching was really fun and a pleasure to just meet people on their path doing different things. Um, but finally, somebody mentioned to me the word witch camp. <laughs> and something about that just rang in me like, what is a witch camp? And, so fun. Uh, it sounded so fun. So <laughs> I, um, this was in 1996 in the summer I called up, um, it was actually Madrone at California witch camp way back then still. And, um, talked to her about what witch camp was and it sounded so fun. And I said, wow, that sounds really fun. And she said, um, you know, it's fun, but don't mistake the fact that it's intense. 
and that it's going to be some of the hardest work you've ever done and really probably some of the funnest work you've ever done too, but don't get so excited that you're not looking at what you're getting into. And as someone who has struggled with being the person who's always willing to go into the taboo stuff, this for me was just like Christmas because I was going to go to a whole place where people were going to be doing this level of intense, magical, creative work together. And then when I got there and discovered so much of it was improvisational and in the moment and inspired and profound in a way that I had never imagined, that was like, hook. I'm hooked. Um, and then some years later, I saw my first whirling dervishes. And the same thing happened that happened with the word witch camp. I got that vibration in my soul that said, that is something you have got to, you got to do it. And um, back in 2010 is when I started studying and was initiated right before the pandemic in 2019. Wow, um, I didn't realize that you were initiated. Yeah, the head of the Mevlevi Order in Turkey came to the States, and his his health has been kind of sketchy, so it was super exciting that he was here and um, at Claymont, like just a hop, skip, and a jump away. So that was pretty great to have Wow. That. Yeah. Wow, I mean, I actually am so interested in what happened to you when you started to spin. What happened when you started to spin? Did you did it change things for you? What is the spiritual experience of that? Well, it's been such a mind-blowing thing and something that as rational as I am, I struggled to get my mind around it. Um, I was just reminded on Facebook that I had posted a question about why, why do I feel the way I do during the turn? And I actually have two friends that are also witches who are rocket scientists who described what was happening to me from that perspective. And what they said was that in the turn, we always go counterclockwise. We spin the direction of the planets in the same direction that the planet's rotating. And part of the posturing yeah. is to turn your head to the left so that you're looking towards the heart. And there's one ear listening to your heart, one ear listening to the divine. And the right arm is up, receiving the energy. The left hand dangles and just allows it to flow down through you. Yeah, I'm going to have to do so this. I'm going to have to. You have to give it a try. <laughs> so um, when we first learn, we don't open our arms for a very long time. We practice uh in this position. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was despite the fact that I wasn't exerting a lot of energy, I was pouring sweat. Like there was something energetic that was happening in me that I couldn't understand because it wasn't tiring. It wasn't super physical. There's a lot of concentration. Um, but something was happening energetically inside of me. And it was when I was still really sick with Lyme and my doctor was telling me to sweat 10 minutes a day and I really couldn't, but I could if I turned. If I turned, I could just sweat and sweat and sweat. Um, and then when I got to the place where I could finally open my arms and really do the entire turn and experience that, there were times that I felt like my connection to gravity just severed. I felt like I was flying and that love was just pouring through me in this mystical dance with all of these elements. And these rocket scientists said that we have the greatest concentration of neurons in our head, in our brains, and in our hearts. 
so that when we tilt in that axis that aligns with the earth and we spin in the same direction that the earth is spinning, we're lining up vortices with the energy of the earth. And they said, that's why you're, you're having these experiences that feel so much bigger than you and, and transcendental and like an energy that goes beyond your own body. Um, so yeah, it's, it's delightful. And the, the practice is all based on Rumi poetry. I mean, a, a day of classes is three hours of Rumi poetry and turning lessons. It's who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> who doesn't want to just listen to Rumi talk about love? Love, right? love, love. That's all he talks about. Love, love, love. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a what an interesting practice. So you're 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 like exploring, you know, you have a deep dish relationship to fundamentalist Christianity of some kind. Or born again. Sorry, not fundamentalist, born again, which is interesting because it is a death cult. Um, you know, I, I'm Catholic and they, and they uh, ruminate, ruminate on, on his death. I tried to explain it to my grandperson the other day. And I was like, well, it's a ritual where we eat. We're, I could get in trouble for this, but we eat, <laughs> we eat Jesus's body every Sunday is the idea and drink his blood. And, and they're like, what? And I'm like, I know it's a tough death cult i can't help you with this it's it's a mystery cult but it's also a death cult it's really spends all its time focusing on death as opposed to the next thing you got into which was the craft which once a year we get around and we we think oh you know it's that one. Oh, death right yeah everything dies right in a hundred or as my as i like to say in a in a hundred years all new people and um and then you went into this practice that's about love and spinning and do you, you know you probably know this but there's like a practice of spinning uh which is for ptsd which is when you're having a little ptsd episode if you haven't been cured of it yet um you just stand up and spin just like spin three four times and it'll wow. reboot your brain just that simple act and you can do it either wow. way and it'll, it'll reboot your brain and if it's a you know, particularly bad one, if you do the breathing as well, which is um, a deep breath, hold hold your breath and then let your breath out, you'll you'll go back to calming, help your body calm. It won't cure you of PTSD, but it will help you with an episode. So I'm not surprised that the vortex, vortex is opening and the gravity aligning and letting you go. Like that. <laughs> so, um, uh, one of the things that you, there's a lot of things that you do and have done. You certainly have are, uh, have done a lot of teaching and taught a lot of people a lot of stuff about mystery and accessing mystery. You're a beautiful ritualist, drummer, singer, songwriter. Um, you work with people one-on-one -on -one to help them move through their blocks and their, and to get where they want to go, which is a kind of a well, how would you describe that? Would that be, would you consider that life coaching or priestessing or how do you conduct consulting? It depends on the context of it. I use all of those words depending on who I'm talking to. Right. Okay. And so yeah. you, you will do it one-on-one -on -one with people, but you'll do it in groups as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this then moved you, well, and also you mentioned the Lyme's disease. 
you also went through what some people, I know we're not supposed to use this word anymore, but when I was taught this, it was called a shamanic crisis, which is a necessary crisis that you go through in order to delve into and be have access to the mystical realms. And that having, um, trying to get into a relationship with the other side or the mystical realms, this side and that side, I suppose, without a shamanic crisis, um, it's difficult. And so you had an incident like that or a life like that where you suffer from Lyme's disease for a while. And that brought you, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that experience and as a spiritual experience when you went through that process? Yeah, it was, um, for me, it was a really interesting time. And I met you at the very beginning of this series of transits that I was going through astrologically. And um, I had seen an astrologer who said that Pluto was going to go um, over my sun and then go retrograde and then go over it again and then go direct and go over it again. It was just going to boom, 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 boom over a number of years. Why Pluto? Pluto? And it's like, it takes over 700 years, right, to make the full circuit, but it hit my sun. And then a few years later, like a decade later, did the same thing to my moon, went over it, retrograde, went over it. And I'm so grateful for the knowledge of that because I would have been I might have even been suicidal because things got really yeah. hard. But yeah. because I knew it was a Pluto transit, I knew it was going to end at a certain time. I knew that I was going to be getting some sort of an initiatory experience, that I was going to come back from the realm of the dead. Things were going to be better. I'm so grateful for the people um, who saw that in my stars and and said, you know, hang in there. It's going to get bleak, but you're going you're gonna to get through it and be okay. Um, so for me, a lot of it was even though I was traumatized by a number of things that happened during those years with murders and weird, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff that went down yeah. along with these illnesses, these debilitating illnesses. Yeah. Um, it was just such a wild roller coaster, but part of me really was in observer mode. This is what Pluto looks like. I could see it's unfolding. This is the story. There was some part of me that was able to almost observe it like witch camp as this long story just playing out over a number of years. Um, and I'm grateful to have that connection. Um, so for me, a lot of it was about how do I open most profoundly to these lessons? And I would look at things like, um, well, Lyme is a parasite. So what Am I allowing to be parasitic with me energetically in every way? And just beginning to strip away all of those layers of almost like working with Lyme as if it were a dream or a tarot card or, you know, something like that, because that's how it felt. It felt like yeah. a mythic journey that you have to dive into. And I had to dive into and try to understand what lessons are you asking me to learn? And I felt it would hold me until I got it. Um, and a couple of things that happened along the way were great doctors who said trauma is also connected to um, long-term Lyme, not being able to get rid of it. And they suggested neurofeedback and different kinds of trauma therapies that were really excellent and I believe were very key to my healing. So and then, neurofeedback, let me just pause you here because mm, I want to make, yeah. dis make a distinction between neurofeedback um uh, and biofeedback because i think everybody knows what biofeedback is sort of getting somatically in touch with your body and 
seeing what your body's doing, but this is actually just your brain. Can you tell us just a little bit about that neuro, neurofeedback work you did? I love it. And it's super fun. It's a powerful, powerful tool. And there's actually been a book um, released on it quite some time ago called, um, ah, I will come back to you with it. Okay. I can, um, Harmony, uh, no, Symphony in the Brain. That's the name of it. Symphony in um, the Brain. And what they were realizing was that um, this neurofeedback was more effective than even EMDR for treating PTSD, that it was more effective than anything else that had been tried, drugs, talk therapy, EMDR, you know, all of the different um, strategies. Yeah. And um, what they do is they put electrodes on your head and they move them around based on which area of the brain they're dealing with. Um, there's an area where they work with anxiety and depression, one where they work with um, childhood memory and um, emotions that are connected there. And then another area where they're working on trauma um, circuits. And um, based on what's happening with your brain, your doctor figures out what you need and they determine the optimum frequency for your brain to be at when it's, when it's the most functional, efficient, calm, you know, vibe. And they dial that into the computer, stick the electrodes on your head and then cue up videos. And these can be videos that you bring in or these, what they call games on their system that respond to your brain activity. So you get rewards for being in the zone <laughs> Um, you get visual rewards, you get auditory rewards. Um, and if you're not in sync, then you lose those rewards and things break up and you can't hear them or they get really small. Um, so even though consciously I thought, well, I can just do some grounding and I can do these different wonderful energetic skills and I'll be able to, to move these, you know, sensors, but I couldn't. Uh -huh. um, it really was on this very unconscious level of just the brain going, we're doing this differently. We're doing this differently. There was something about it that is um, fundamentally weird, <laughs> but really powerful and super wow. fun because, you know, you get to like fly a jet through a tunnel or race a car. And, you know, if you do terrible, it starts flipping over and going into the sand pit when your when your brain gets a little wonky. But what it's doing is actually lighting up parts of your brain that have gone dark or quieting parts of your brain that are overwrought and really bringing your brain into a kind of a better alignment. Mm -hmm. So many of our problems are mechanical now, I realize. Um, after having two years of trying to process people through trauma, it's, it's like actually a mechanical issue, trauma. And, um, you know, what things happen to you as a child, but if you get an illness and things like that, parts of your brain shut down. So this is a way of lighting it back up without drugs. And without and going for the strictly for the mechanical treatment, which is amazing. Yeah, there's no there's no talking about it. You don't have to drag up the story. You don't have to yeah. do any of that. It's just like let your brain reboot. Yeah, it's powerful. It's stuff. really really cool. So you did that on top of all the other treatments that you got for your Lyme's disease, which I think you and you did go to. It seems like you went right to the edge of death and sat at that gate between life and death, remaining in your body. Did you mostly remain in your body or did you ever actually have to leave it all the way before you I came back? I stayed in it most of the time. Yep. 
just remembering a story about a lightning bolt for some reason. Was there a lightning bolt situation? Did there you was a talk? lightning bolt. Did you want to talk about that? <laughs> what happened with that? It was uh, not long after I'd been diagnosed. I'd been diagnosed in California and had moved to Virginia after falling in love with Crow and coming out here. Um, and Virginia has these amazing thunderstorms. They are epic. They're incredible. And there was one happening around my house and I was watching it. It was just, it was astounding. It was beautiful. And you could see the bars of lightning just flying down the street and through the field. And it was amazing. And I was looking, I was sitting on the sun porch and looking out the windows. And I remember I had my dog with me too. And I saw a bolt of lightning coming down into the field and another one coming right after it on the other side of the house. And it was kind of like this dunk, dunk. And I just felt this boof. And all of my hair lifted up and my dog's hair lifted up. <laughs> and it was just like some kind of a mild shock. We weren't struck by lightning, but we had this big, like, energetic boom that happened. And I didn't need sleep. I was just like, I wasn't wired. I didn't feel like, I just felt like I'm, I'm good. My energy's awesome. I was getting four hours of sleep every night and feeling great. Wow. <laughs> and had no pain or anything. And that lasted for probably about six or eight weeks with wow. like symptom free after that big shock, which was fascinating. And that makes me wonder too about the mechanics that was some kind of a big reset, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so eventually you got enough treatment that you worked through all your stuff that you did and you under and you got to the place where you really got that relationship with death. Is that fair to say? That you really I've got always that? kind of had a tight one, but um my own journey certainly brought me in very, very close um to looking through that abyss. Um and I did think I was falling through a few times. I, I really had given up hope and was in a pretty desperate state a number of times. Mm. Um, yeah, I forgot where your question was. Where well, I was that, going. That's, like, that's <laughs> it. That's it. And then where did you get, like, what would you say, it's hard to recap years of your life, but what would you say is the, I know this eventually led you to being a doula, a death doula, and eventually got you to a place where you were helping people with that edge between life and death and the process of being ill or dying. But what would you say was the thing, the main thing that you got out of that experience, that shamanic wounding? You were already psychic, you were already in the mystery, but it took you very deep. So I'm just wondering, like, usually you worked it hard. What did you feel like is the the gifts of that, I suppose. This feels like such a huge thing to even begin to talk about. But for me, it was really learning how to love myself. Oh. That was the biggest gift that I got through all of that. Because when I couldn't do and I couldn't give, and I actually needed, I needed help, I needed support, I didn't feel like I was contributing in meaningful ways, but just needing more and more resources that just stripped off so much stuff about my worth and left me pretty naked and looking at the fact that I didn't value myself and that I needed to find out how to enter into a loving relationship with myself that wasn't based on what I produced and how much I gave and all of that sort of thinking. So that was a really profound gift. You know, it's really interesting because as you come from these two cultures of 
that have been systematically oppressed and um, destroyed through colonialism. Every time I think about this, I think, what happened to the British that they decided to go around the world destroying everybody? But that's a topic for another day. But you're, <laughs> you know, so you're, you know, your First Nations ancestry is wounded from from that destruction. The same, you know, that what happened to the First Nations people happened to the Irish first. Um, and and here you come and get profoundly ill. And I really think when people go through that process and learn to love themselves, that they're healing that ancestral wound. And I think time moves in mysterious ways. And as we heal ourselves, we heal the descendants. But I think we also are healing our ancestors. When we learn, when we are, when we survive long enough to heal ourselves and to love ourselves, we're actually saying to our ancestors, you survived long enough to give me this gift. Whatever you did to get through was worth it because I am your descendant and I am going to fall in love with myself now and remember who I am and what my ancestry actually gives me. So when I hear this story from you, it's just very moving and profound that that's what you found in that experience. Because we always want to avoid, we are in a culture that wants to avoid death, wants to avoid illness. And these are parts of being a part of the planet. It's the whole freaking, it doesn't have to become the cult of our religion uh, necessarily, but it does, we, we, it's important not to ignore it. And here we are in a culture that is afraid of death and afraid of illness and wants to make it go away. And when you're sick, I've been very sick in my life, you do want to make it go away. <laughs> it's like, make yeah. us go away. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, you can't make it go away until you grapple with what it's trying to heal. Because death, is, you know, when we pray for people who are dying, sometimes the healing is they die. That's what the healing was. Um, so when you're coming into this place where you start to explore and learn and teach and, and um, provide people with this exploration of dying. How's that? How are you doing that? What's the work that you're doing around that? Here's a great way to support me in my efforts. You can go to patreon.com forward slash ask pomegranate. That's all one word. If you want to get behind all the work I'm doing, it would be really helpful. Um, wow, it's so broad. I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I love doing is I love helping people that are facing their end of life for terminal reasons or whatever. But I also love helping people that are not, who are just wanting to um, learn about resources, to understand what their choices are, to make a good plan so that their friends and families don't have to try to figure it out um, if they can't do it for themselves or they're dead or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels really good. I do some volunteer work with a local hospice. Um, we're developing a virtual um, 11th hour vigil sitting training program. So for people who are going to be with folks at the end of their life, just some basic things to understand and about the body processes, about what to expect if you're sitting there when somebody dies, what you do when they die, um, 
things of that nature. So a lot of, a lot of things are happening in the death realms. I'm doing, um, did a couple of death salons for BC camp. Um, What is a death salon? Death salons are super fun. There are times where we get together and choose a couple of aspects of death and dying or after death care um, and talk about it and then kind of have a Q&A and share some resources and things like that. So um, the first one that I did was on what a death doula does. Um, the second one I did with Captain on queer death and dying and different resources for that. And the third one that I'm about to do with Yule is going to be on after death care and home funerals. Um, we tended copper together when she died. We took care of her so, body for three days and, you know, got copper her to the cemetery is, ourselves. And Copper's a woman who recently, this last year died, right? Is that yeah, right? Last year. Mm -hmm. That you were at the deathbed and at the, at the funeral for, and Ted's, was the tender. The, the priestess of that piece. Mm -hmm. um, and we did all of the body tending ourselves. Um, we took care of her and did all of that. It was really sweet. So that's what our next death salon is going to be on. And then um, I'm doing the death box initiative, which has a mix of both. There's some people with terminal illness and some people who just want to get their affairs in order. Um, and it's a very sweet space. What are the details of a death box initiative? What, what, what's going on? What is that all about? This is a dream that I've had for a couple of years. Um, and what I learned through my doula training at the University of Vermont is that most people want to die at home. Um, most people don't want to have extraordinary measures or life support or different things like that. But most people don't make those wishes known. And what happens is they end up in the hands of the medical community who's going to do everything they can in their power to sustain your life, even if that doesn't mean giving you what you want. Um, it could mean a very bad quality of life, but they'll do what they can. So um, I learned about a town in Wisconsin, La Crosse, Wisconsin, where they have the highest number of people with advanced care directives than any other place in the country. It's a ridiculous amount, like 90 something percent of their population has done their advanced care directives. And it all started through um, their hospitals and just asking people when they came in, if these things happened to you, what would you want? And people just kind of going, whoa, definitely don't want this. Or yeah, I definitely want that. And just making sure that people really understood what they were, what their options were and what they were being asked. Um, so the death box is about getting those affairs in order, but it can look at look like whatever the participants want it to. I suggest things like an advanced care directive, which is appointing someone to make your medical decisions if you can't do it yourself. Um, an act of dying directive. So who do you want around? Sounds, smells, music, um, that kind of thing. So imagining your own death, like imagining what the process, if you're, mm -hmm. if you have the grace to die over a little period of time or some period of time, um, knowing what you want, like thinking about it, like you would think about a birth room. What do you want there in that birth room? We think about that in great detail now, but we don't think about the death room in great detail. And we don't think about how to bring our values into the death room. We're so used to it being taken care of for us, you know, in a sterile white sheet kind of environment. Um, Medical environment. 
Yeah. And part of what I advocate for um, is the home funeral. Even if it's just keeping the body at home for two hours after the person dies, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to, you don't have to take care of their body or ice them or, you know, do any of that stuff, but just slow no. everything down and take yeah. your time and yeah. be, be together and be present and let the space unfold, you know, for the, yeah. the magic and the mystery of those moments instead of them being cut off and sanitized. So the death box has all of that and your, your after death wishes. If you've bought a funeral plot or you've arranged a green burial or whatever your, your post death wishes are. Um, and then if you have a will, you would maybe want a copy of that or list of contacts for security deposit boxes, things like that. Um, you might want to put in your outfit. You might want to put in, um, <laughs> a service. You might want to put in some of your favorite poetry and songs that you want done at your memorial. You might plan your memorial. You might write your obituary. It's kind of a whatever you want to do with that so kind of do thing. You with lots people of options. Through the, do you take people through the process of this? Is that what happens? Like, how does that work with you? Like, what are you, what are you doing with folks? Like, if I wanted to do this with you, would I call you up and say, one-on-one, -on -one, you and me? Or how, how does it work? What's the format? Well, the format I'm doing right now is a mix of things. I have, um, we do monthly meetings on the dark moon on Zoom. And if people can't make those, the recordings are available to participants. And I use the platform Teachable. And that's where we upload um, the Zoom videos. We have downloadable handouts. We have discussion boards, homework assignments, um, share photos of your work in progress, you know, those kinds of things to keep people engaged throughout the month and it's rich and beautiful. And then when people register for that, um, I give them a monthly call with me as well as part of that. And it's a six month plan. So we kind of break it down into bite-sized pieces. We're looking at um, defining a good death. Right. And then we look at who and what really matters. And then we look at what are our legal documents and wills and wishes and how are we going to do that? And then we look at who are our agents, our caregivers, our, the people that we want bedside, like um, people are, who are in our spiritual wills, people that we want to designate certain items to, different, you know, different things of that nature. Um, wow. So that's like literally you're taking people from a place of, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people do not ever think about or want to talk about or face these topics. Um, even my family, we had a lot of the talk. We were not afraid of death and we had a lot of talk, but there were times when I wondered, does my mother want to listen to this much Johnny Mathis while she's in her semi-comatose state? Or is this just my <laughs> sisters like feeling better about it because there's a noise in the room? Like, Personally, if I was laying in the bed, I don't want anything playing. I want quiet. So like actually be able to confront this difficult situation, whether you've, you're, you're dying or not, right? You don't have to be terminal to, to do this. You could be perfectly healthy, young even, right? To go ahead and think about who do you want there and how do you want it to happen and how much, how much work do you want people to go through to keep you alive. I always say, 
do not resuscitate. This is what I say to my husband. And he goes, we're going to resuscitate, okay? <laughs> if it's, you're young yet. I'm like, it's okay. I can go at any time. <laughs> so we're joking about it all the time. But it's very interesting to really, and it seems like it would be overwhelming and scary for people to look at all this. And maybe it's easier just to avoid it. But then that puts the burden on you not getting what you want, but also other people having to figure it out. Like my sister is going, Johnny Mathis, 24, 27, all day. We must have the Johnny Mathis playing. So, so how do you, how do people, is it, is it really hard for people to do this process? People are resistant to it. Like I, and I think it's just an illness in our Western culture because there's a lot of cultures who are very death positive and embrace death and they don't have the, the same kind of phobias that we have in the West, you know, where yeah. we just feel like, Bleh. so what I have actually discovered is that what happens when people get engaged in these conversations is it brings life all the more precious. It brings more joy to simple things. It's, um, it's extraordinary. It's not depressing at all. It's really quite the opposite. And I remember learning that from Colleen, who was one of my first people that I worked with for years while she was dying um, about four and a half that we worked together from the time of her diagnosis until she finally died. And, and she would say like, man, all of this stuff about worrying about what people think about you, it is such a waste of time and energy. Just do your stuff. Just like do it. And I came up with a little meme that was in, uh, in honor of her that just had the big word up. And then the little words show up, fuck, up, clean up. <laughs> and that was really her. She was just like, show up, make a mess, be responsible for your mess, but keep showing up anyway. Just do it, do it, do it. Oh, um, my God. And that's what it feels like when we're looking at death. It's like, life is short, make it precious. Um, I find forgiving people is easier when I think about death. Yeah. Like, yeah. if we were, if one of us was on our deathbeds, would I still be mad at you? about that road trip, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, no, absolutely not. That would seem so petty. And it just, right. there's a liberation in it. There's a freedom right. from um, some of the attachments that come with not looking at death. Yeah. My, my mother was um, because I am a priestess of death and I, when I was born, I died and came back to life. So I have this direct relationship with like, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> like. It's okay over there. <laughs> I've gone through the process of having uh, many people in my immediate family die yeah, at a young age. So I have a very deep relationship with death. But when she was on her deathbed, one of the things I did was I she had picked out her outfit that she wanted to wear in the coffin. And I was like, yeah, my, you know, but you'll be dead. So like we had a bit of an adversarial Leo, Leo relationship. I'm like, so yeah, I'll be able to put you in anything I want. So I did a um, a show, uh, uh, fashion show where I dressed up my nieces in her clothes in really bad combinations. And I said, how about this for an outfit? 
and then they would come in and I would just just be glaring and horrible and then a new one and so we put them in 30 different outfits over three or four days and it was the most hilarious time I had her laughing and falling off the bed at one point I put a tiara on her head I said I'm putting a tiara <laughs> on you're getting a tiara in the coffin ma and that kind of like just being willing to accept the fact that um you know, she will have no control, but also, isn't it funny? And also, isn't it sad? It was really one of the most delightful times. And it was because we're Irish. She was, a, she's Irish. She was a person who w- would wake up every morning on her deathbed and go, and I go, what, Ma, why, are you make, why are you making the raspberry Ma? And she said, not dead yet. <laughs> I decided to die and I don't know why I'm not dead I'm like well Ma you know you, you have a body and you have to respect it's got to release you as well as you release it right it's the two you're breaking up and it takes time <laughs> so there wasn't a fear of death in the room which was nice um, and I think probably your this process helps people deal with their fear of death by the way, don't be afraid of death. It's great. It's fine. You just <laughs> It's real good over there, isn't it? <laughs> it? It's so much better. If this is hard, we're doing a hard thing being here and we're just, it's like you just get up and go, oh yeah, what's, oh, there's, there's that body I was in. Oh, weird. It's, and then someone comes, someone comes and helps you and you're immediately transported where you want to go. So I, everybody just don't worry about it. But it doesn't matter. But however, your physical body does have a response to dying because it's going through a different process than your spirit. And it's okay for your body to be having its physiological responses to ending, but it also knows how to do it. Did you find that? Do you find that when you're with people who are dying, that the body knows what it's doing? Very much so. Yeah, people are uncanny with their ability to time their own death. They're like, they look like they're just sleeping and out of it, but there is something very active happening in the room very much. Yes. People will die um, waiting. They'll wait for someone until they get there and then they'll die or the opposite. Wait till everybody leaves. They're like, oh, would you get out of here so I can die? Yeah. I (laughs) I need some space to talk to these ancestors that are coming in the room. Um, can you tell us a little bit about stuff that happens? Like, what is a good way to sit in vigil for someone who's dying? What, is, what's, what are things to think about? What are things that you could screw up if you do it the wrong way? I think what I would say the most is that, well, unconditional positive regard is a really good energy to go in Ooh, with. Just Wait that a minute. You're say it again. I love Unconditional that. positive regard oh, for let's the person live our who's lives. dying. Let's live our lives that way. Unconditional positive regard. Okay, new motto, new motto. Go ahead. Love that. Yeah, it's lovely. So bringing that to the deathbed, I think, is is kind of an essential thing. But one of the places that I find the most mysterious and magical and where people are least informed is around nearing death awareness and how the communication needs of the dying change. And they start talking about things in a dreamlike way where it sounds like they're in a dream and they're recanting it out loud. And people often say they're demented. They're losing their minds. They're, you know, their, their brain is stopping. It's, it's cognitive processing and they're getting confused. A lot of this gets, um, 
overlooked as being a, a failure of mental cognition or that mental cognition is going in a different way. It's, but actually, yeah. these people are working stuff out. There's this amazing book um, that we had to use in our program called Final Gifts. It was one of our textbooks written by two hospice nurses about six traditional experiences that happen no matter your race, religion, where you live in the world around death. And some of those things are talking about the past as if it's happening right now. And they're actually trying to work something out about that. So if you're sitting vigil and somebody starts talking to somebody in the room and says like, really? Oh, I'm so sorry. You could lean over and say, what are you sorry for? I didn't hear the other part of the conversation. Get in it with them. And then that way, if they are trying to solve something, they'll be able to get to that with you. And it might be through symbols, but if you work with dreams at all, you'll get it. You'll, you'll understand what they're trying to, to say to get to this place of closure. Um, we have somebody that I do caregiving for who's in that space right now where she's meeting the people. She's meeting her team on the other side is what I call it. And it's the cutest thing because she's meeting people she's never met before too. So she said things like, what's your name, sir? Oh, and what do you do? <gasps> really? She was mesmerized and fascinated with this, this conversation. And it, it happens you don't have to be a believer. You don't have to have a faith tradition. It doesn't matter. Like the team shows up and, and different things happen. So I would say unconditional positive regard, know your medications and if, and to make sure that you are looking for signs of discomfort to make sure that your, your client isn't uncomfortable. I think uh, um, people like to hold back on medication and it, that seems to me, I'm not a doctor, but that seems to me to be a real mistake. That you that's right. Can't, you can't actually over-medicate a dying person. That's correct. And there's no, there's no idea to even discuss about addiction, about any of that stuff. This is about helping people minimize their physical symptoms while they're dying. Um, and it's hard and painful. And especially certain types of cancer and things like that are just, just terrible. So, yeah, I think... Um, Pain medication is something that I find myself advocating for as a caregiver and as a death doula quite regularly, and usually asking for more than what they're initially offering in most cases, with few exceptions. I've worked with some hospices that are like, we are so committed to this person not suffering, and here's what we've got. Um, it really just depends on all the relationships that are present there and what the people who have the medical agency, what they're deciding. And sometimes as a doula, that overrides any any prompting that I would have or advice I would give. And we have to go with it. And that's that's tough as yeah. someone who is bedside that you can see care not going the way that you'd want it to go and having to figure out how to how to hold that and it's the problem doulas face at both ends of the both sides of that gate and birth gate, it's the same problem. Um, and it seems like it's the same problem, the medicalizing of birth and the medicalizing of death. Uh, yeah. We can, through this work of the doulas, I think, we can come to a place where we, we get the best of both. We get the best of the medical world, but we also leave room for the fact that this is a profoundly spiritual experience to give birth. And, uh, you know, it's the same gate, by the way. Birth and death are the same gate. Um, <clears throat> and to die because you're being reborn into another world. 
is a very powerful experience. Um, I just want to pull up your your information to get a hold of you. We're going to talk more, and we're going to take a little break. Uh, but before I do that, I want to share the screen and just remind everybody: if you're interested in working with Willow um, with these death boxes or finding out about death doulas um, and one-on-one -on -one and rituals for dying, you can go to willowkelly.com, and that's willow. W-I-L-L-O-W, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y dot com, or email her at willow at willowkelly dot com. Five two zero two 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 ninety nine twenty two ninety nine twenty two. You can ask pomegranate, you can ask pomegranate, she's a priestess. Okay, I'm back with Willow Kelly at willowkelly.com. Um, Willow, you're available to people one-on-one -on -one if they want to talk to you about this process or if they need any help with really any spiritual question. Um, you have a really reasonable signing fee scale. So if anybody needs help, um, some people are always asking me to do it uh, if I'm available for that. And I'm really not, guys, because you know what I'm doing now is painting and uh, also <laughs> obsessively gardening. But um, I'm trying to put my work, my life into my painting right now. So, but Willow is, I highly recommend Willow. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't offer you one, you know, Sage, Willow knows Sage, Sage Good and Willow Kelly are two of the top priestesses I know for one-on-one -on -one consultation. So get a hold of her at willowkelly.com or willow at willowkelly.com for email. Um, and now Willow, let's talk about the moment of death a little bit. And then let's talk about, okay, what about that separation of the body, the spirit from the body? And what about happens to the body? Because my, in my um, experience, people like to think that graveyards are haunted. They're not haunted. That's not where ghosts live, y'all. Ghosts, you know what I mean? <laughs> you want to go to where a place where ghosts live? It's usually someplace where people have a traumatizing death, which will be roads or hospitals. Haunted. Hospitals are haunted. I don't know why they don't have people going through there all the time, just like smoking the place <laughs> out. Like, you know, hospitals are haunted. And what happens is, but in graveyards, what who who you will find is the people that I call those who remain, which is the animal body, which holds the story of that life. That that animal body holds that story of that life better than anything. The spirit kind of goes off and goes, oh yeah, that life, whatever. Yet another one of my many lives. But that animal body does. And as it goes into, and Will is going to tell us about ways it can go into the earth, back to the earth, it, it takes that ancestral story and weaves it into the fabric of the earth. And that is the power of the skeletons. That's the power of the flesh. That's the power of those who remain, which is an, a form of an, ancestry. And those are the ones we live closely with. Uh, the spirit, on the other hand, either gets trapped and becomes a ghost. That's very rare, but, it's, but it happens. Or it just immediately crosses over and goes on its merry way. So that's my, I just want to put my two cents in about that. But You've been present at the moment of death for people, and what's what is 
what's happening? What's your sense of what's happening then? What's needed? What do you, what's your job in right before, during, and after that as a person who's tending that? It really depends on what the other person's wishes are and what they've asked for. Um, they might want my assistance and intervention to continue through the whole process, or they might have other plans or arrangements made with family members or loved ones or any of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it really depends on, on what services they're looking for and how much they, they want, <laughs> they want, um, I don't know, like an active assistance from me. Cause sometimes it's just, they need a couple of resources or they need to know the right question to ask a hospice nurse or, it can be as like these tiny little windows that they just need a little bit of help coordinating. Um, the family member. Yeah. But what or about caregivers. the what about the dying person at the moment of death? For the dying person, to me, when you said this thing about birth and death are the same gate, <clears throat> one of the things that I had heard that I loved, and it's a poem, a poem that I'm going to botch because I can't remember it, but or who wrote it, but it was something about. Um, there's a dark tunnel and then suddenly there's a light and people rejoicing to see you. This is birth and this is death. You know, that they're both this thing. And for me, what I perceive is happening, even in the sweetest and most tranquil of deaths, is that leading up to that gate, they are laboring and it's just like birth. Some people have it easy. They yeah. labor for an hour and boom, they spit out a baby. And some people dying is the same way. They labor for an hour and boom, they're dead. Other people are going to have back labor and, you know, be miserable for three days. And, you know, it's, it, it's just, it feels very similar to me. So part of what, what I want to do is I want to tend their spirit. I want to tend their mind, their body, all of those things to make sure that every need that I am aware of is being met to the best of my ability. And sometimes moving into those dream states with the person, and I really think it's just a different reality. We just slide yeah. into their dying reality, and it's as real as this reality. And coming into it with them and walking them as far as I can to that very last breath. And then once they take that, you know, they're they're in other hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's part of that. I feel like I'm passing them along yeah. in that way um, and and don't follow them once they once they pop on out your job is to is to not follow them because you're living yeah and our if we're someone we love we want to follow them but you can't it's not the best choice let them go yeah very definitely true <laughs> let them and go technically speaking when they leave the body they go up they go up to the corner of the ceiling this is reported over and over again I don't know why and they go up and they look down. So you, if you, when they die, if you look up, you'll be looking at their spirit. And that helps them acknowledge that, you know, what's happened. Right. Yeah. I think that is super helpful. And, and you can do things like um, open windows, cover mirrors, and that's a way of, of just saying to them, you're go you're crossing over now. You don't have to do this. This is for you. But it's just like a way of saying, no, no, don't go, don't go the wrong way. We're blessing you with the right way. We call in what I call the beautiful dead, which is the ancestors that come from the other side that are dedicated to helping. You're, even if you become a ghost and you get lost, there will always be people helping you. It's like Hogwarts. 
<laughs> people will always help you cross over. They'll always be there for you. And those, that team will always come for you, even if you're a ghost and they never give up on you. And eventually they'll get you across. Ghosts, ghosts can't stick with being stuck forever. They just can't. So um, those are some of the things that I do. What happens now with the body? You're suggesting some things about giving it time. Well, you're reminding me of something I wanted to um, just speak to briefly. And that's another way that I feel like the the 11th hour or the nearing death um, time is something that I can help facilitate for the dying person, but it involves their loved ones, is teaching them how to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. um, people often don't know, especially in our culture, it's tragic. People are tongue-tied when they're with people who are dying. They don't know what to say. They don't want to mm -hmm. say anything positive that would make them feel guilty about enjoying their life. And they don't want to say anything about the dying because they don't know if that person's comfortable and they go through this whole mess. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. just strip away all of that and be human with them. Yeah. And I give them six things to say. I write it okay. down on a little post-it note and I hand it to them. And I say, you can follow this script or you can be as specific about these things as you want. Um, but those six things are, I am sorry, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And I will be okay. We will be okay. Your project will be okay. Whatever, whatever that person holds on to that, that is tethering them. And that is in service to that person dying because they're getting, they're being released by their loved ones. They are being handed through the veil of mystery instead of that clinging, don't die, don't go, you know, that, that kind of vibe. It's more like, boy, does this hurt? And man, was it good? And, or maybe it was challenging, but it's done. We're here. Gosh, that's powerful. I mean, you're, I'm tearing up hearing this. I don't know. I don't know if I could have done this at my mother's bedside, but um, it would have been profound to even think about doing that at the time. And I was a, a full-blown born peace priestess seeing her across, but to do all those six questions, yes, powerful. Can I hear them again? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive I me. I forgive you. Mm. Thank you. I love you. I, we, your projects, your dog, whatever you're worried about will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Yeah, you're gonna need a doula for some some people around to get yourself through that. Yeah. <laughs> some some deaths you won't be able to say I forgive you. It took me ten years right. to forgive my mother after she died, but we're okay now. I did forgive her. We're okay now. <laughs> but I can talk I've... to the dead, so we can work it out. You know, and if you can't talk to the dead, you might want to do it at the death bed. Try to do it. What? If, but you recently, or you wanted to talk about that? You recently went through. A big death of your own. Oh, when my mom died. Yeah. Was that? Yeah, in February from COVID. Yeah. How, how you weren't with her because of COVID, right? How was that? Did you? Did you? Because you don't have to actually be physically present, do you, to do this? No, but um, I was very fortunate that I was able to be there virtually with her, which is also extraordinary. Um, my brother was in the area and they did allow him to come into the COVID ward to, wow. to hold her hand while she died, which was amazing. Um, and he, 
called me because he knows I'm the youngest of four. I would not be the the logical choice in the patriarchal sense of the word, but he knows that I'm comfortable with this. And he knew that he might be asked to make choices that he needed somebody to hold his hand. He needed somebody to be there with him. Um, so he called me and took me in there and I asked him if he would just put us on FaceTime so I could look at her and talk to her and say those six things to her, which wow. I did. Willow. Um, and I sang to her and, um, just did a really, it was very, very sweet. Um, she died during the last verse of How Great Thou Art, which I sang for her. Wow. Um, and it was just, it was just precious. It was a very sweet, sad, tragic, <laughs> dying, but also really sweet. And she was still a Christian. So she, that was mm -hmm. the perfect thing for her. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. So what do you recommend for the body? Now the person's dead and things have shifted, they've gone and we have a funeral or we have at least a dead body to deal with. <laughs> um, and what, what is a good way to, on cause you know, a lot of times what happens is you call and you say they're dead. And then they, if you, if this is a home birth, I'm talking about a home birth. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. Yeah. yeah. yeah same thing. <laughs> So then the guy comes and they go, yeah, she, they're dead. And then they, and then somebody comes along and you're whooshed out of the room and they put them in a plastic bag and that's it. Like, it's the most weird, strange, like the garbage, almost like our culture is like the garbage man comes and takes, takes away this beautiful body, those who remain body. And if it has, holds all the stories and it's just taken away without any kind of anything. And then they, do all kinds of like I don't know what happens in those funeral homes and I, I really appreciate funeral people people work in funeral homes but I don't know about that whole process seems kind of intense Could you tell it's us very more, intense tell us more about all that part of it well first of all um, embalming is not required uh, most of the time probably 99.9% .9 of the time bodies do not have to be involved embalmed but they usually are because people want them to not look dead at a wake or they just it's easier for storage until they bury them or whatever but it's not necessary and the US alone sinks about an olympic sized swimming pools worth of embalming fluid into the earth every year whoa what yes and that is cancer causing highly toxic materials. So yeah, one of the things is, is just like advocate for no embalming, even if you're going to have a traditional, like they're going to take the body and it's going to go to the mortuary and they're going to do a thing. You can still say no embalming. Um, they can put people on ice. They can do other ways of storing them so that they aren't decomposing. Um, so I, there's, hmm, <laughs> there's so many areas that this can go into. Um, I belong to the National Home Funeral Alliance, and there are home funeral guides all over the country that you can access through that website. So that's a really great resource, as is the Funeral Consumers Alliance, because they will tell you your rights to a dead body. Um, you oh. are usually legally able to go and pick up a body, even from the hospital, and bring it home for three days before you have a funeral. 
That is oh. usually legal. You can usually apply for a permit along with a death certificate um, to get a body transport permit at the same time as they file it. And often you will find medical people will do this for you if you educate them and you let them know that it's totally legal and this is what you want to do. They will do all the research. They will make sure that you are able to get what you need. Um, we had wonderful help every time I've done this where people have gone above and beyond to help us do this. And like you said, both of these gates are so sterilized. And I honestly believe birth and death are the things that make us most human. Yeah. And to remove them from us is tragic. Yes. And we go through terrible injuries in hospitals from both hospitals are wonderful. Hospital staff are wonderful. Every time I've gone to the hospital, when I was having a thing, I was just like, thank you. I love you people. And <laughs> the industry of medicine has injured the birthing process and injured mothers and injured people. I think people get into a lot of harmful behaviors after a loved one has died because they didn't have a relationship with the dying process. They don't know, they didn't, weren't raised in farms. You don't know that things die. You forget, you know, chickens are cute little cartoons and not a dead animal that you're eating, right? You, you're disconnected from it. So we've lost all our rites of passages around death and we need to heal them, which, which you're doing. I mean, this home funeral, I didn't know that you could, we have people listen all over the world, but in the United States, you can have a home funeral, which means if someone dies in the home, you can just leave them there for three days. Is that true? Yep. Mm -hmm. Really? Because it is very disruptive to have the, the mortuary guy come. And um, it's really hard to convince your straight family members. Like, you know, I had to say to my, my family, like, mom died. Let's let her body. They did trust me because I was the priestess. But I was like, let's let her body lie. But I couldn't have gotten them to do it more than about 10 hours. I did get the 10 hours. I think you need more like 48. You need that 48 hours of the body cooling, maybe 72, three days is good to really let that release happen. Because it's a, we're still in time, the spirit isn't. It takes a while in our time for the spirit to fully evacuate the body, especially if the spirit's not tended to and you're not helping it evacuate. So that three days is great. What is We've been home? so, Go ahead. sorry, I was just going to say, we are so fortunate that Buddhists and Jews have consistently asked for their bodies for three days after oh. death. They have kept open the doors for home funerals for the rest of us. And we would have lost that right along with all of our other death rights after the Civil War. We would have just lost all of it, if it hadn't been for these other demographics that are like, no, we actually have to keep this door open. We have to tend our own. Once again, so, we thank, thank the, Jewish the Jewish people. and the Buddhist people. Yes, yeah. the Jewish people save the world again. Again, again, yeah. again, again. <laughs> so now, now, if I can do a home funeral, what do you recommend? How do I do that? Like, I know there's an organization that I can contact, which is called the what now? The National Home Funeral Alliance. And it's good to have a death doula around. Who knows about all of this? The National, the National home, home Funeral, funeral Alliance. Alliance. And what would you recommend? How, what happens? How do I do this? How do I, 
how do I handle this thing that I maybe have never seen in my life before or? Well, the coolest thing about this organization is that people love this work so much and they're so passionate about it. They will do it for free. They'll answer the phone in the middle of the night. People will help you with whatever you need. Um, so in the event somebody dies, you want to keep them at home. You go to the National Home Funeral Alliance website. You call their hotline or email their hotline. They'll put you in touch with somebody in your region. Um, and they will tell you what resources that you need locally. Because laws do differ from county to city and state to state and different things like that. Um, who issues the permits and when and how. And, you know, there are some things that you have to figure out how to navigate. But they are almost all easy to, to get through if you know the um, proper channels to be looking at. And with COVID, things were tricky with the registrar's office basically being closed to the public made it very hard to file a death certificate and get a body transport permit. Um, and we've had to rely a lot on um, helpful medical people or just not having them get their wishes done with COVID. And if you've, done this, if you've done this death box work beforehand, which we should all do, then your funeral, if you're going to have a home, you want a home funeral, it's actually easier on your family, isn't it? in the long run. It really is. And what's interesting is I think people have a, a fear about being with death or being with a dead body. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's kind of a normal thing. Um, when someone died who had a, a young daughter, um, when she died and she knew that we were going to do a home funeral and we were going to wash the body and we were going to anoint her and we were going to make her eyes stay closed and do different things to her to, you know, um, prep her for this, this time. And the daughter was like, I, I can't do this. I just, I really can't do this. And she walked out of the room, but didn't even get halfway down the hall and walked right back in and said, of course I can do this. This is my mother. And she said, I don't know how. And I was like, it's really easy. We're just going to use these washcloths and this basin. And we put some oils in here. And we're just going to use that and wash her. And she just she just dropped all of that fear and inhibition. And she was with us for the rest of the time. And whatever we needed to do, however we needed to do it, she was fully present and so grateful for it. And I think that's the story I hear the most is that there's family members who are resistant. They think it's gross. They think it's unsanitary. They, they think it's creepy, morbid, all of these different things. But when they're actually presented with the moment, something magical happens and this nature is, collaborates with death. Yeah. It's beautiful to behold. Like who wants to miss that? Yes. It's so beautiful. It, it, this is your loved one's body. This is the one, this is the vessel that carried them. So when you're washing the body, you're just like letting them go. It's a really easy way to let people go. And when you miss that, when you go zip it in a plastic bag and cart it out the door and you're like, what happened? Where you don't have any time to process what happened. Right. You don't see the body. You don't handle the body. You don't know they're dead. Because let me tell you something, those of you who have happened to have this experience, a dead person is not the person you love. You can see the difference between the person you loved and animating that body and when they're not. Mm -hmm. But the body is the per it held that person you loved. And you can let that go. You can wash it. You can anoint it. Or you can watch someone else do it. Although it's very bonding to do it. I mean, there's nothing to be afraid of. And yes, your heart will break. And that's the point. 
The point about death is our hearts break. And that's another thing we avoid, along with illness and death, mm-hmm. we avoid avoid heartbreak. And that is the most futile thing you'll ever do because your heart is going to get broken. That's the point of life. It's not literally the point of life so that you can open yourself up and break open. You're breaking open and you're becoming someone new. So that process is just like, I can't um, overemphasize how beautiful it is to do that and how rich that anointing and washing. And even if you do call the mortuary, um, you can still wash and bless the body before it goes. That's right. So um, how do you find home funerals? What are they, what's the, what happens with them? Like what's the difference between a home funeral and a prescribed one elsewhere? I think it, again, depends on what the person's wishes are, but usually they lie in state at home for a day, two days, three days, something like that. And people will come over, bring food, visit, share memories, stories, play music, um, hang out, barbecue, um, play fetch with the dog in the yard and the kids, like just bringing life energy into the into that place with death um, and the celebration of it. So it really depends on the group and what they want to do. Um, A friend of mine that I work with in Threshold Services, which is our volunteer organization for home funerals um, and natural burials, her stepson died at 21 years old. And what you were saying about um, how when the body gets whisked away, we don't process the grief or the trauma and it kind of gets stuck in us in some way. Well, with these people, when they laid him out um, at home, they did it in an alcove with a curtain so that people who were afraid of seeing a dead body didn't have to, but people could easily access him and go visit him and spend time with his body. So they had it set up like that. And then they asked his friends, all of these young guys, to dig his grave. Where I live, um, people can be buried in the county as long as they're a certain distance from city limits and and water sources. So all of his friends went out to his mother's land in the county and spent hours hand digging and clipping and shoveling and crying and laughing and telling Mm -hmm. stories and exhausting themselves. And they finally had the funeral. They, they got the body and they got him out to the, the site and somebody brought a coffin that they had made really fast in the couple of days he'd been in state and the guys had dug the hole and, and they put the guy in his coffin and he didn't fit the lid, the lid wouldn't close. So people just stopped and like people brought out refreshments and people were chilling by the gravesite mm-hmm. while other people went and got tools and saws and some extra wood and added a couple of inches around the top so they could close the thing. So they spent the entire day out there having this. And then um, these young guys had developed a ratchet strap system for lowering the ah. coffin <laughs> into the ground. And they did it. And you have to realize that this took days. This is digging oh, yeah. and this is yeah. hot. And, and you know, they're doing all of these things. So they finally, you know, get him in the ground. And of course, putting the dirt over takes very little time compared to yeah. um, digging the grave. But my friend said that when that last bit of dirt went over the grave, she said the grief was tangible. People were shredded. They were torn up. But there was this ecstasy. There was this fierce, like relentless joy that was moving through the group. And she's like, I've never seen a funeral like this in my life. And I want everybody to know this experience. 
Yeah. And it's, it is, you somatically process so much more yes. when you are physically with that body, when you are with the people who loved that body too, and you're in it together. Yes. It's, it's a rite of passage. It becomes a rite of passage, which we need. We yeah. need a rite of passage at death for, because when people die, they are taking with them that part of us. That's what we're really grieving. We're, we're grieving them taking with us. They, they say, oh, yeah, that part of you that I held is gone now. And now you have to become somebody different. You're grieving the loss of who you are. You're grieving their presence in your life, but also you have to actually go through a profound change. And mm -hmm. if you know that, and that you'll never go back to that other person, just like birth, because I see a lot of mamas and they're like, I'll get back to myself in a few months. And I'm like, nah, you're never going to be never. her. And it takes her, <laughs> takes women like a year or two years to even realize, oh, I'm never going to be her again. Okay. Or that person again. So that's the same way with death. And so when you have work to do, you, that you put into that death process, that helps you integrate the fact that you are not that person anymore. You still have to go through shock and all those things and pain, and you might not come out of it for a year. It's still going to be really painful. I'm not saying it's not going to be, but it's going to be pain that you understand as opposed to pain that makes no sense to you when you can do yeah. that, when you can either be at their deathbed or psychically connect to them while they're dying or involved in their funeral or see their body laid out without embalming fluid in it. It's better to look at a body that's dead, being dead, than to yes, make it, it look fakely alive. They're more beautiful when they're just natural. Like yeah. copper was, when they say they went forth shining, you can really see it. Like there's this radiance. And often uh, my friend Lucinda, who wrote this amazing book about reimagining death, and she talks about lots of home funerals that um, she's attended. Um, what was I just going to say about her? Your friend Lucinda, copper, copper shining, moving forward, shining. Ah. I'll come back. I'm completely, I'm completely skipping it, uh, skipping a groove. But one of the things that she also talked about in that book is how nature collaborates and how the very beautiful, oh, I know what it was. She talks yeah. about that a number of the deaths that she attended, several of them, as a matter of fact, she said sometime after the person dies, usually within a few minutes or so, um, within an hour, maybe two, they smile. And there's this look yeah. of joy on their face yeah. and then it relaxes. And she said, it's, it's profound to see it. And she's like, they're still, they're still there. There's still, still this there. and they're, and they're on their way out. They're going to oh, be yeah. gone in another hour or so like they're yeah. going to, but they're still just going like, yeah. <laughs> and just remember there's no time for them, but you're it, the actual body's going through that time period. So yes, they're still leaving and that's, Okay, so now let's just take another little break. Um, if you are interested in this topic, if you need a death box uh, program to work with Willow, if you need some one-on-one -on -one counseling around it, or you just want to talk about somebody who died recently, whatever you need, um, I want to suggest that you get in touch with Willow Kelly at willowkelly.com or email Willow, Willow at Willow at willowkelly.com and also Willie Willow you're on Facebook 
Willow Kelly on Facebook. How? What's the Facebook identifier for you? Um, the best one is actually the Art of Living and Dying LLC. That's the best for Facebook. Um, okay. That one picks up all of my offerings, whether they're death related or life related. <laughs> so okay. it's a good clearinghouse for all of it. All right. So we're just going to take a little break and we'll come back with more with Willow Kelly about, you know, maybe a little bit about what to do with the body. And then how do you, how do you live? How do you decide to continue living after a major loss? Five, two, zero, two, 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 99, 22, 99. You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. So we're back with Willow Kelly at willowkelly.com. And um, we're talking about death and dying. You're probably, I'm saying this like it's a radio show. Sometimes I think I have a radio show. And like people will suddenly tune in. (laughs) They're going to know we've been talking about this because they've been listening. So um, <laughs> I, I just have this, you know, radio mind. The, I love radio. So anyway, back to you. So, okay, now um, what do we do with dead bodies, Willow? We don't want to embalm them. That seems like bad. Embalming fluid's bad for the planet. Is that true? It doesn't Very bad. compost. Okay. Uh, it's some kind of like intense, what the heck is it? Do we know what it is? Formaldehyde and other chemicals, other cancer-causing chemicals. It's what? it's terrible stuff. It's formaldehyde. What happened? Formaldehyde. Stay away from it in all its forms, especially in wood in your house or in your body when you die. My God. Okay, so that's right out, um, and there's no good reason for it apparently. No good reason for it. It actually became a thing during the Civil War. Um, for shipping bodies home and keeping them from rotting before they got home. So that people were not like flipping out of their minds about all these dead bodies. And it just became industrialized after that. So, okay. So um, what do we, what, what do we do then? Like we can bury them in the ground. What's the body? Do you know anything about what to do with bodies after they die? Do you mean the nitty gritties of like after death body care, that kind of thing? Um, I'm or do you like, mean like body disposition? We, like, where do we put it? Where do we put them? What do we do with them? So do we here's put them a in the ground? Do we burn them up? Do we put it bomb them? What do we do with these uh, these beings? These after these those who remain? What do we do with those who remain? So traditional burial is really not at all in any way environmentally sustainable. Um, It's not just the embalming fluid, but it's the precious woods and metals that are buried. I have statistics that would just make you slightly nauseous. Um, There's the concrete vaults that go over um, the coffins. And the concrete vaults are to keep the lawn level so that it can be mowed. Um, Most cemeteries are monocultures and they use a lot of pesticides. There's all of that kind of stuff. So there's all of these ways that our modern burial practices are 100% unsustainable. We cannot keep doing this. Um, And 
back in like the 70s and 80s when people were all talking about becoming cremated as like the new way to dispose of your body, that was really edgy and that was very hard to become a mainstream thing. But now more people are making that choice to be cremated, thinking that that's the better environmental choice. And it's not that much better. There is... It's not good. It, like the amount of heat that it takes, the amount of time it takes to actually burn a body and the amount of outgassing from that and the heat and the all of the damaging environmental stuff. It's just terrible. So we are faced right now with this, what they're calling in the death industry as the silver tsunami. It's the aging of all of the baby boomers. And it's going to be an intense impact on the health system on hospice care, on end-of-life care, that it's just going to be this massive influx of people needing care and needing to be buried and not having the space and the capacity to do that. So there have been a lot of people doing a lot of cool things on the side to come up with alternate ways of disposing of bodies. And you've probably seen some on Facebook, like being inside of a pod that a tree is going to grow out of and as your body decomposes, it feeds the tree and, you know, different things like that, which are fabulous, but maybe not legal where you live. Um, And that's part of this issue too, is, is all of these things that are now coming in as the way to dispose of bodies would have to go through all of the legalization of these processes through all of these different states. Um, You may have heard a couple of years ago that Washington state approved body composting, and there's now a body composting facility there called Recompose. And they have been approved approved now in Colorado as well, and are going to be opening up another facility there. They're beautiful. Pop you in a pod, turn you into soil. You can go back to your friend's tomato garden, or you can be donated to a a land project or whatever you'd like. Wow. I Um, I I want to be composted. (laughs) There's an artist in New York who is looking at something called Constellation Park, which would be putting you into um, putting your body into a case that as you decompose, the heat turns you into a light and you light up a memorial bridge with all the other dead bodies that are hanging there. And they have places for funerals. They have uh, memorial gardens and places to sit and gather and all of these. And it's beautiful. Constellation Park. Check it out on the internet. It's a beautiful concept. Constellation Park. Wow. It's a concept. An idea. Okay. Yep. Wow. Um, And there's something else called flameless cremation or aquamation or alkaline hydrolysis. It's got all these different names. This is the way that hospitals have been disposing of bodies for ages, um, basically reducing them through alkaline hydrolysis to water, basically to gray water. Um, And that is now becoming legal in multiple states. I think we're up to 20-something states now have legalized aquamation as a legal way of disposing of your body. Um, The problem that end-of-life people see with it is that it's extremely sterile. Like you're going into this, you know, steel container with all these bells and whistles on it while this process goes. It's not earthy. Um, Certainly you could probably decorate the space to look nice. I don't really know. But that's one of the questions of how do you how do you make that feel sacred doing that particular process? Um, And green burials are becoming much more popular. because there's need. It's it's not just the environmentalists that are concerned. It's actually people can't afford traditional burials. They're extremely expensive. 
um, and they're wasteful. So there's a lot of movement around that in this country, trying to figure out um, better ways of disposing of bodies. Wow, interesting. I always wanted to have my body donated to art. Because <laughs> I want to be the skeleton in the corner of the drawing room that they're drawing the skeleton. <laughs> You know, when you go to art school, there's always a skeleton in the corner. And I, and I would always go talk to the person. I'm like, so anyway, how'd you get here? And what did you think this was going to happen? And, you know, and it's <laughs> like, ah, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And usually it's some very small person. So I assume they're from Asia or somewhere because they were actually really quite small. Some part of portion of Asia. Um, and it's not always kosher, but I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to just be a skeleton hanging in an art supply room? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it's possible to do that. Um, or there is a way to do that, but maybe there is. Um, all right, so now there's, it's good to look into that and for all of us to be thinking of that, maybe you'll go and, and look into Willow's uh, program that she has around death boxes. So you can think about all this for yourself or for someone that you love. Um, you might think, oh, I'll do that when I get older, but I will let you know that you can die at any time. Any second now, you can be dead. Uh, it's not illness or age that kills you. It's death that kills you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is, I've seen many, many, many chronically ill people who are always on the verge of death. 35 years later, I'm like, I might be dying sooner than you. <laughs> you know? Because actually when death happens, it's death that comes with comes to get you and it doesn't have to come far because death your death is a spiritual companion that is born when you're born and it it walks daily through life you right now it's right beside you it walks daily through life and it knows everything it is about you it's very quiet it doesn't get boss you around like the rest of your spirit guides <laughs> but it's there and then when it's your time it'll go want to go and you will say yes because you've had and also we all get about we, I think we program in like three, four, seven doors throughout our life where we could just take the exit, right? And uh, so it depends on what you program, pre-programmed in. And when that comes, the door, the death opens the door for you. And I don't know what happens to death after that. It might help you cross over. I'm not sure. But it's death that's going to kill you. Don't worry about illness and old age. So, and it can come at any time. My little brother died when he was 17. My older brother died when he was 33. Um all kinds of ages, these things can happen. So it's a mythology that children don't die before parents. I don't know why we have that myth either. Like, you know, this is like, it's not right. Children shouldn't die before parents. It's like, are you, do you know anything about the human animal? Children <laughs> die all the time before parents die. If you, the older you are, the more likely you are to die, to live. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to die statistically. Now we've changed that a little, of course it's worse for people of color, but really, except death, y'all. Sorry, this is my little lecture on death. Anyway, <laughs> back to you, Willow. So what I wanted to ask you now is like, okay, we've had that long discussion. We were thinking, I'm thinking about it. I don't think about this enough, and I really should, um, about what I want. And now I'm like, okay, what I see is a lot of times is when someone dies, people have a, survive, a thing called survivor's guilt. And even when an old person dies, like 95, mm -hmm. you'll see the, the mother, the child go, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad at be, being still alive. 
earlier before we started our conversation, our recording, we were talking about you finding a way to live your life that is out of desire. Is that what you said? Is that what you called mm-hmm. it? Because we need to be able to validate our, our, the thing is you're still alive because death ain't come for you yet, right? And it's not your time. And you're actually trying to horn in in someone else's death when you go, I don't know why I'm still alive. It's like you're still alive because <laughs> you're not dead yet. And also dying people are also not dead yet. Dying people are living, dying people are living people. Dead people are dead people. And there's one side or the other, and that's it. So we don't want to treat dying people like they're dead because they're not, but you're also not dead. Get it, get a clue. You're not dead. You know why? Still breathing. So you got to embrace your life, even though you just saw death. It doesn't mean you died. You might take it too personally. And you were talking earlier, and I was kind of getting inspired by the things that you learned from your own illness and going to the edge of death. And I probably watching other people die and helping them is this idea of living out of desire. Is that why you said, is that how you said it? I was talking about my business plan was less of a plan and more of a following desire kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be following desire is a way to defeat that white supremacist idea of being guilty about being alive I think it's a part of white supremacy to do that, to have or colonialism to think that being alive is a, is a, somehow you should feel guilty about being alive. That living out of desire, as opposed to ambition, because we're trained to live out of ambition, mm-hmm. and you lose your you fucking lose your ambition when people die. You do, and expect it. You just go, what's the point? I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Why am I alive? What's this all about? It resets you and it should. But if you find, what's it like for you to find that desire on a daily basis and then to follow that rather than ambition? Or, you know, even I think sometimes inspiration can get, because it can be so heady, inspiration can get confusing. Whereas desire is a different thing. It is. And I really um, am glad that you asked about it because I've struggled with um, just what you said, trying to go the traditional route, the business plan, the, you know, the way that you're, you're instructed to make this all work and have just failed miserably at it over and over again. And um, I just did a lot of personal work at the end of last year and tried to get rid of some, not get rid of, but integrate some of my shadow stuff and, and get through some of these last little humps about putting myself out there in the world. Right. And then when my mom died in February of COVID, she died on February 9th. And it's an experience like none other. It is fresh. It's so fresh. It's so fresh. And I felt in this, I was in this place. First of all, I had, I had seen her virtually die on FaceTime. I don't recommend it. Um, It's better than not being there at all, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty helpless and Um, difficult place to be. Um, But I noticed that the complexity of my emotions was more intense with my mom than with anybody else who's ever died in my life. And that makes sense, right? Like it it is the most complex relationship for me. And I realized I was not going to be able to process it with my normal tools. I wasn't going to be able to journal it down to untangle the knot by 
talk therapy or trance or, you know, just going through all of these things, I got this really clear message that I needed my body to be leading me in this process Mm. Mm. instead of my mind. Mm. And so I thought, what, what, what do I know? I know that moving the body, that shaking, that those sort of things are resilience building tools. And so I decided that I would host a full moon trance dance um, that was focused on a piece of my personal practice that I do every day anyway. I created it for myself as a, as a way of being accountable to show up for it. I will show up and dance if I put it out there that I'm doing this thing and people show up. So I sort of tricked myself into it by like, I really desire this thing and I am not accountable to myself. I need a container. I'm going to create it through an offering. And what happened with it was amazing. It was, it was so much richer than I could have imagined. I processed a lot of my own stuff. I felt much more free energetically. I was able to cry and move some different emotions through my body. Other people had wonderful experiences and I was like, let's just keep doing that. And that was the moment where I said, why not, why not let this, this has always been true for me, but not in a conscious way that if I'm going to go teach magic about community building, I'm going to have some struggles with community that I have to figure out and work out that magic and then, you know, show up for it. It's like, we get those, we get the lessons that we're heading to, you know what I mean? It's like this orchestration of all of the stuff coming together. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you followed that desire to, is the, well, let me just pause for a moment. Full moon dance trance. Do you offer that to the public? Is mm-hmm. that a thing that I could go and sign up for and pay some money and go do? You could. Once yep. the full moon. Oh, moon magic, y'all. Moon magic. Uh-huh. For the rest of the yeah. year. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you're 21. <laughs> okay. So go to Will, willowkelly.com for that or ask, no, not ask Willow. That's me. Ask Pomegranate. Maybe you should have a podcast <laughs> called... Willow at willowkelly.com because um, you know those full moons are a really good time to tap into desire. Uh, desire is one of the three ways that I navigate the world. I desire, I navigate it through understanding what my wants, needs, and desires are, and differentiating them. I'll do a podcast on this sometime soon, y'all. Um, and when we do, we follow. We're following our soul's journey as well as being an animal on the planet, because it's real easy to be a soul and a spirit and have big high flutin inspired ideas, but we're also supposed to be animals on the planet. So wants and needs are important too. So that full moon energy will really bring you to a place where you can, where you can offer your desire to the moving orbs of the universe <laughs> in relationship to you, and they will take the message out and I'll help you create the environment that you choose to live in it works it's called witchcraft and it works i doesn't have to be called witchcraft but it, you know my, that's what i call it so so that's really that's really exciting um how so how do you get around your ambitions or your linear thinking scheduled kind of like you know how some people have like five-year plans, you know, I have a five-year plan and I'm like, yeah, well, good luck, good luck to you because life <laughs> is what happens when you're busy making other plans, you know, 
Um, if you're not making plans, you might be actually able to experience life, which is in that desire, I think. But how do you get around that kind of like, got to prove my worth, got to have an ambition, got to be practical, got to make it happen. I, if it doesn't, if I don't make it happen, <laughs> well, how is it not, how is it going to happen? And it's like, well, nature just makes things happen without having to make them happen. If you observe nature, it just happens on its own. Um, I'm going on and on. I want you to answer the question though, please. It's hilarious because you're summarizing my life for the last 25 years was like, make the plan. How do you market it? How do you get the word out? And it was still with the, with the right spiritual intention. Like this yeah. is healing work. I want to put it out there and I want to, yeah. but how am I going to get people to bite? How am I going to get them to trust me? How am I going to draw them in? You know? Yeah. And I spent all of this time. I took some classes. I did some workbooks about like creating your ideal avatar, your client avatar, and then trying to market to them and all this stuff. All of it felt terrible to me. I just could not, I could not get myself in alignment with it. There was part yeah. of me that was like, yeah, there's something that's not great about our money system anyway. Like there's, yeah. there's some kind of toxicity there. And I was, my struggle to reconcile that kept me going in this self-defeating loop for a very long time of thinking right. if I just had the right plan, if I just had the right strategy, I could, you know, get the success thing. And I just realized that life's short. I mean, that's part of the thing of doing the death work. Like, dang it, people, life's short. I'm getting older. I don't know how long I'm going to have like great mobility and the capacity to go and do and all of that. I want life to be rich and beautiful and sweet. And I have finally learned after all of these years that my joy and my enthusiasm is what markets me. I don't have to do the memes and the social media stuff and the all of this marketing plan, I just have to talk about what I love. And people are like, I love it too, or I think I'm going to love it or whatever. It really is do what you love. And people that are needing that and loving that are going to be drawn too. And it's just liberating. I, I had to do a bunch of shadow work to get there through that self-worth stuff, right? Of just, yeah. and the whole comparison thing of how do I compare to people who are putting similar work out and just saying, ah, yeah, there's All nobody different. like, but well, there's nobody like you. I mean, there really is no one like you. And that's the key. The key is there's nobody else doing what you're doing because you bring, it's all of the things that have happened to you in your life and all of those depths that you've gone into that produced you. And here you are, the child of your ancestors who overcame all that oppression and survived anyway and gave you as much of a head start as they could with all of that love, generation after generation of love and devotion and belief in you. And here you are healed and healing and able to offer that to others. And here you are uh, the beautiful promise that they survived for. And as you survive and thrive and offer these beautiful things and y'all go check out Willow Hire her and go um, take her, her death box work. Do it. Honor your own ancestors. Find your own journey through life. And then notice that you're going to die because in 100 years, all new people, <laughs> all new people. And here she is available to you. I highly recommend her. Uh, Willow Kelly at willowkelly.com. On Facebook, Willow Kelly. Um, and what was the thing on Facebook that we could find you at? The Art of Living and Dying, LLC. What a beautiful woman. 
Oh my God, we're so lucky to have you on the show today. Thanks, Willow. Thank you, Palm. How fun. (laughs) 